Well, some of you know my love for high school football, and when I go to high school football games, there's uh, one particular cheer that I really gravitate towards. I love this cheer. Well, one of the guys uh, will, will go, I believe, and the crowd says, I believe, and then he said, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that we, I believe that we, and then you know what they say? They all jump and bounce saying, I believe that we will win. I believe that. How many of you have heard that cheer? It's one of my favorite cheers. Absolutely love it. Now, if the home team is down 48 points in the fourth quarter, I don't think they cheer that. Why? Because the cheer is built on real belief in the heart. It comes from confidence in the team's ability to win, and a love for winning. you got to love to win to have a cheer like that. You don't cheer without a deep love for winning. I believe that we'll get crushed. That's not a popular one. People don't usually say that. It's enjoyable to win, and the cheer recognizes that. Well, Jesus is the most enjoyable reality there is. Better than winning football games He is the supreme pleasure. Worship is the cheer built on a heart that genuinely believes, believes in Christ's supremacy over all things and an intense enjoyment of Christ as the supreme treasure. The outflow of true belief is worship of Jesus. The outflow of true belief is worship of Jesus. Worship thrives where genuine belief resides. But wherever unbelief thrives, well, guilt before God remains. And that's what I want to explore today from our passage. Let's start with the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Simple question. John wrote this book to help you answer, yes. Well, it was unexpected. The man had never seen anything. Jesus put mud on his eyes. He went and he washed his face off at the pool and he opened his eyes to a flood, a rush of color and movement and life. He was mesmerized. The sounds and the smells and the touches took on new meaning. For the first time in his life, he could see. His heart was open. The Pharisees despised him and ejected him from the synagogue. The opposition was bitter Yet he could see. It all happened so quickly. And Jesus came to him again. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus knew that that the healing of this man had instigated the man's expulsion from the synagogue, and he went and found the man. Much had changed in the man's life, just like that. Ejection from the synagogue was extreme, Yet he could see. Jesus was circling back around to teach the man the gospel, to share the gospel. He asked the man the all-important question that each one of us has to answer, do you believe in the Son of Man? Not do you believe that there is a Son of Man, but do you trust in, do you have faith in, do you have confidence in the Son of Man for salvation? See, there is no salvation without belief in the Son of Man. So Jesus shared the gospel with this man. Jesus didn't say, do you believe in God? He didn't say, do you believe in the Messiah? He didn't say, do you believe in the Christ or even the Son of God? 
as some translations have it. Let's make sure that we understand the significance of the Son of Man. Son of Man appears 193 times in the Bible. 93, which is 48% of which are found in the book of Ezekiel. Son of man is often another way of saying human being, and that's how Ezekiel used it in his book to refer to himself. Psalm 146, verse 3, illustrates this meaning. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. So in one sense, son of man means a human being, you and me, son of man. But Daniel uses son of man differently. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, I want you to see this in your Bible. It's absolutely essential in understanding John 9. As you turn, Daniel was lying on his bed at night when he saw these these visions, and God communicated amazing truths to Daniel through these visions. God or the Ancient of Days took his seat on his throne. He wore white clothing symbolizing purity and he had white hair symbolizing wisdom. His throne of fiery flames had wheels of fire like, uh, like a chariot with power and sovereignty with a large army of servants before him. The Ancient of Days sat to judge. It was an intense scene. And then Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14 say this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Wow. Daniel saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, which suggested divine authority, coming to God, the ancient of days. Psalm 104 verse 3 describes God making the, chari- the clouds his chariot. And Isaiah 19.1 speaks of God riding on a swift cloud. So when the son of man arrived with clouds of heaven, it signified divine power and glory as he was presented Before God. Now, what three things did the Ancient of Days give to the Son of Man? Verse 14 Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. God gave this Son of Man sovereign rule, honor, and esteem, even a kingdom to govern. And all peoples, all nations, all languages would bow the knee in service to the one like the Son of Man who would rule forever over his empire, which would never be destroyed. The Son of Man rightly possesses universal and timeless sovereignty over all things. Think about this. Where is the Ottoman and Persian Empire? Where is the Han Dynasty? Where is the British or Roman Empire? I read that the the Roman Empire is considered to be a perfect empire by some historians. Because of its influence, justice, longevity, pure size, military protection, and economic prosperity. But not even Rome obtained universal sovereignty. Every empire has met its end. There is only one kingdom, 
one king who possesses universal and eternal dominion and sovereignty, a king by which everyone, aristocrats and beggars alike, will bow their knee in servitude. It is the Son of Man who is both human and divine. The question was simple but profound. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man's answer is stunning. Verse 36, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He was honest. I'll believe in him, sir, if I could just find out who this son of man is. He was open. He just needed the gospel. He seemed to know of the son of man, but he didn't know the son of man. As soon as he knew who he was, he would believe in him, right? That's the spirit. At this point, the man didn't even realize that he was talking to Jesus. Look back at verses 6 and 7 in John 9 and verse 11. When the man washed and came back seeing, Jesus was already gone. Though he knew Jesus' name, he had never seen Jesus. He only heard the voice of Jesus. So in verse 36, he addressed him as sir. Sir, now there's something going on here in the Greek that you need to know To be aware of, the Greek word kurios was a way to show respect to a man, like calling a man sir, or in the old days, uh, calling someone lord. It was common and respectful, but kurios also means capital L, Lord, as in a title for God, similar to Adonai in the Hebrew. The man offered Jesus a courteous sir as an address, like people would have done in the day, because he didn't recognize Jesus as the man who had healed him. What Jesus said next, save the man. You want to pay close attention to what's going on here. Verse 37 is gospel. As awesome as the miracle was that he opened the eyes of a man born blind, this is the most significant event in the narrative. Jesus would unveil the identity of the Son of Man so this man could believe and be saved. Verse 37 Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Now at that moment, all this great significance and richness of the term son of man came flooding into this man's heart and into his mind. He saw the glory of the son of man in Jesus Christ. Did you ever have a nickname? I had a few. Some uh, some I liked. Sometimes my family would call me the kid. Now, on my mom's side, I'm the, the youngest of everybody. The youngest of the youngest, the kid. Sometimes my co- cousins called me Chunner. I have no idea why, um, but that stuck. Uh, my brother called me Blub. <laughs> because when I was younger, I had some roundness. And I, just, I never knew this, but I just found out that blub is British uh, slang for blubber. So there you have it. I never knew my brother was British, and I never knew my brother was so cruel. (laughs) Well, nicknames often have meaning. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other nickname. He told the man, I am the Son of Man. That's what he was saying. Daniel 7 is about me is what he was saying. It meant Jesus is human like us, and yet he is different, he is distinct, he is divine. Do you believe in the Son of Man? 
Jesus was telling the man born blind, the man he had just healed of blindness, you have seen the Son of Man. Not only were his once blind eyes now seeing Jesus, but he is now seeing the Son of Man, the sovereign King with a kingdom of eternal dominion and glory. The King before which all people's nations and languages would bow the knee in service. The Son of Man was before him in human flesh. A man that had never seen anything in his entire life was now seeing the Son of Man, was seeing God. The Son of Man was speaking to Him, and He could see Him. This was the miracle of miracles. So many people are trapped in darkness, spiritual darkness, trapped in a colorless world, a numb world, with no enduring joy and lasting pleasure, no vivid truth, because they can't see Christ. What can open their eyes? We love these people. They're our friends, sons, daughters, neighbors, cousins, co-workers. And yet they can't see the truth. They don't see and savor the supremacy of the Son of Man. And we know they will perish without Him. How will they see? Well, there is a hopeful answer. The blind will see when through the gospel God graciously heals and reveals himself to them in vivid and colorful reality. When they humbly recognize their spiritual blindness and turn to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, to see and savor his beauty. The blind will see when God lovingly condescends to communicate to them the power and glory and loveliness of Jesus Christ, his son. This is exactly what Jesus did for this man. The man saw. He didn't just see with his eyes. He saw the reality of the gospel before him. Oh, dear friends, take heed to John 1.14. And the word became flesh. And lived among us. And we have seen. People don't miss that. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. People will see the glory of God. When they encounter the living Christ. In the gospel proclaimed to them. And by God's grace turn from their sin. And believe in the truth. The miracle of sight. Only served to point to the sovereign son of man. This is the magnificent apex of John 9. The moment we've all been waiting for, verse 38, the man who had been born blind, the man that Jesus healed, the man that could now see, said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Kurios, I believe. No longer sir, but Lord with a capital L. What did he believe? He believed in Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Lord God. At that moment, he trusted Christ as Master, and he expressed his saving faith with passionate worship. It says, and he worshiped him. John said he worshiped Jesus. Isn't God alone the proper object of worship? Exactly. That's why this man worshipped rightly, because he worshipped the Son of Man. For this man, Jesus had gone from prophet in verse 17 to God in verse 38. You see, when you truly believe in Jesus, you consequently worship Jesus. 
When you truly believe in Jesus, you consequently worship Jesus. As in, worship naturally follows genuine belief. Now, you might believe that Bill Gates has a net worth of $81.2 billion. That's his net worth. You might believe that. And you might even admire Bill Gates because of it. But you don't necessarily worship him. True belief in Jesus will inflame true worship of Jesus. The word used for worship in verse 38 is most uh, commonly used in the New Testament. It's the word that's, that's most common. It means to bow down and to kiss someone's feet. To fall before that person in love and adoration, showing reverence and allegiance and commitment. And it is a word reserved for worshiping a deity. It's possible that this man literally fell before the feet of Jesus and clutched at him. That might have been what happened. Out of just pure love, pure admiration, pure reverence and worship at the person. It was a humble act of showing devotion to the person of Jesus, to the Son of Man. Do you worship Jesus like that? I wonder. Because if worship like that is in your heart, then you really believe. If you're not falling at the feet of Jesus in that kind of spirit, then chances are you don't really believe in him. I want to park here for a moment to help you understand something extremely important. Many churches are filled every Sunday with people who do not believe in or genuinely worship Jesus. Yes, they might believe that he exists, that there is a Jesus. They may be in a church at a worship service, they may enjoy the experience somehow or gain some um, uh, entertainment or enjoyment from the whole thing. But they have never fallen at the feet of Jesus, compelled by adoration and love and reverence for him. Their life is lip service. Just lip service. They know about Jesus. They know the forms of worship of what it looks like sometimes. Their mind and their body might be in motion, but they never really worship Jesus from the heart. You see, worship is more than singing songs. Worship is more than studying the Bible or hearing sermons. Worship is more than giving money. Worship is more than living a moral life. Worship is a profoundly deep enjoyment of God. I've defined worship like this. Worship is a spirit-led, intentional concentration on and enjoyment of God in the heart and mind, which inevitably spills over in outward expression of committed service and communicative reverence. In other words, worship is enjoying God in your heart, in your mind, and then that just spills out it's, just, it's expressed by living for Jesus. See, if you're not living for Jesus, then you're not enjoying God. If you're not enjoying God, you're not worshiping God. If you're not worshiping God, you certainly don't really believe in God. Do you understand? You believe in Jesus when you cherish Jesus. You believe in Jesus when you cherish Jesus. When we sing together, we only worship Jesus when the song becomes an outward expression of the joy we have in God. 
When we listen to preaching, we only worship Jesus when hearing the gospel truth becomes the delight of our heart and mind. When we pray, we only worship Jesus when our words convey our complete dependence and trust in God. An atheist can go to church. An atheist can go through the motions. An atheist can live as a cultural Christian. Richard Dawkins says that he lives as a cultural Christian. It is only those who genuinely and supremely adore and revere and prize Christ in their heart who truly believe in Christ and worship him as the son of man. Jesus didn't stop the man when he worshiped him. Didn't Jesus once say, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only? You shall serve? So why did Jesus gladly receive worship from this man? Because as the son of man, Jesus deserves worship. I want Jerusalem church, and a deep desire of mine, I want Jerusalem church to be a passionate expression of the joy that we have in Christ. Uh, God wants our lives, our lives to be passionate expressions of worship. I wonder, after the man was healed, what did he do with the rest of his life? I think he just was a totally different man from that day on. I think his whole life was consumed with this person who had given him sight, not only physical sight, but spiritual sight to see the glory of God. In the first Lord of the Rings film, it was The Fellowship of the Ring, the hobbit Bilbo Baggins gives this awesomely awkward speech to his friends, his fellow hobbits at this birthday celebration for him. And one of the lines I think is is really funny. It was a great party. Bilbo was the honored guest at the party, and he says to his friends, today is my 111th birthday. And so they say, happy birthday. And Bilbo continues, continues, alas, 111 years is far too short a time to live among such, such excellent and admirable hobbits. And cheers go up from the crowd. A big moment. And then he says this, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. And it goes silent. And everybody is wondering, what on earth did he just say? And did he insult me or compliment me? I don't even know. It was probably the best line of the movie in in my mind. My last point is a little bit like Bilbo's speech. It's a little confusing. Uh, Until you understand what Jesus means in the last few verses. Here's my confusing Bilbo point. If you can't see, you will see. But if you can see, you won't see. See what I mean? Some Pharisees were in earshot of Jesus, and they heard Jesus say, verse 39, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You're scratching your head. (laughs) What's Jesus saying here? Well, it's pretty cryptic, but he was using his miracle to now teach to say something significant. Well, what did he mean? First, Jesus said he came into the world for judgment. Now, wait a second. John 3, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Later on in John 12, 47, Jesus will say, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Did he come to judge or did he come to save? Well, the truth is, while he saved some, he judges others. God assigned Jesus to the greatest search and rescue mission known to man. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek, to go after, 
and save the lost. But as he seeks and saves, many will be condemned in their unbelief. Rescue and judgment happen synonymously. So some believe, many don't, and that's judgment. That's the dividing line. Jesus makes it clearer. In verse 39, who are those who do not see? What does he mean? Well, they are those who are spiritually bankrupt, and they know it. They are the humble and self-aware, grieved by their sinfulness. They lack knowledge and yet are open to the truth. You could describe them as penitent people. They're not self-confident people. You get the idea? Jesus said that he came to those who do not see so that those people will see. How will they see? Jesus shines in their darkness. Jesus comes and makes them see the glory and truth of God in him, in a person. They see when they believe the gospel, when they receive and practice repentance and faith. So the judgment of Jesus begins with Jesus giving sight to those who don't see. But in the salvation of some is the condemnation of others. Jesus also mentions another group, those who see. Well, who are those who see? They are the people who think they can see and fail to see Their inability to see. They see the sufficiency of themselves and they miss their desperate need for Jesus. Jesus is neither necessary nor precious to them because they already know what they want to know. They don't care about how Jesus applies to their life. That's the last thing they're thinking about. They're thinking about themselves. And those who see stiffen at the idea of their own blindness and need for a Savior. And so they remain rigidly prideful in themselves. They believe in me. Well, this group fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 6.10. God said this would happen. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Those who see diagnose themselves as healthy. They're not sick. They're perfectly fine without Christ. Does that make sense? It's the same idea that Jesus expressed in Matthew 9, 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, as in those who think they're healthy, fail to see their great need for a doctor, for some spiritual help. You see, Jesus helps sick people, and he cares for them. And the prideful and the self-deceived who don't need his help Receive his judgment. John is careful to make sure that we understand the stubbornness of unbelief. And then he he makes sure that we see the beauty and the awesomeness in humble belief and humble faith. So the Pharisees in earshot asked Jesus, verse 40, are we also blind? As in, we are not blind too, are we? Ah, such deep pride. The healed man believed and worshipped Jesus. The Pharisees just sought to justify themselves. The answer of Jesus was unsettling, and it cut right to the heart of the matter. He said, verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees were those who said, we see. We got this. We understand. If only they had admitted being blind. If only they had humbled themselves before Jesus like this man did, then their guilt of rejecting Jesus would have vanished. 
The healed man said, and who is the son of man that I may believe in him? But the Pharisees knew better and they said, we know that this man is a sinner. The guilt of their blasphemy remained because they said, we see. They said, we get it. We understand what we need to know. We're as far as we want to go with your Jesus conversations and your religion and your God. The Pharisees believed the Old Testament. They had God's word. They anticipated the Messiah. They claimed to know the truth, all while rejecting the Jesus who was doing stunning things in front of their eyes. This is the worst, cold-hearted, horrible unbelief that you can imagine. Ignorance of God's word was not their problem. Cold-hearted and rebellious unbelief was the problem. New Testament scholar Leon Morris explained the Pharisees this way, quote, his meaning is that they have enough spiritual knowledge to be responsible. Had they acted on the best knowledge they had, they would have welcomed the Son of God. They claimed to have sight, but acted like the blind. Another New Testament scholar, Colin Cruz, wrote, quote, because they claimed to know and were unwilling to learn, their guilt remained. You know, I've spent my entire life in church. When I was in the womb, I was going to church. Been there my whole life. And if you're like me, if like most of your life or all of your life, you're like, I've just been in church. Always gone to church. Would you really think about what I'm about ready to say? Please, please think about this. Do you say, I can see but your guilt really remains. For years, we have sat beneath the preaching and teaching of God's word. We have no excuse. Do we realize how blind we are and our desperate need for sight through Jesus Christ? If we remain unaware of our bottomless need of the gospel, perhaps we haven't been listening all these years. Perhaps this has all just been a facade, goes in here, goes out here, totally unchanged by it. That would be so sad. We have no guilt if we cling to Christ out of ongoing desperation, need. We need him. This is not a game. This is life. This is eternity. We need this sovereign son of man. And so we come to him in worship, believing in him because he is everything to us. He's exactly what we need. It's terrifying to think that we may actually trust ourselves in the middle of this Christian game and that our religious routine is more to us than Christ. John 9 is a beautiful story of how a man got saved. This book is quite a treasure for us. May we study it at a deep level. And I am grateful that Jesus is still opening the eyes of the blind. Can you see the Son of Man? I hope you can see him. Because he is magnificent. Perhaps you still live in darkness. Perhaps when you think of Jesus, it's just tired, old thing, just stuff. If you believe in the Son of Man, you will walk in the light. And as you do, you will enjoy Jesus in a perpetual state of worship. It just will come out in your life because of what Jesus is and what he's done for you. The great hymn writer Fanny Crosby spent most of her life blind. You might know her story. Uh, When she was six weeks old, this fake doctor, he was just an imposter, 
prescribed some medication for her eyes that actually made her go blind. And when she was only eight years old, she penned these phenomenal and eloquent words as a child. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. On one occasion, a well-intentioned pastor, a preacher, said to Fanny, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Just like that, Fanny responded like this. Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Does your delight in the Son of Man run that deep? Has Jesus opened your eyes to see the glory of his face? And will you delight in seeing and savoring him forever in his eternal kingdom? Because there is a king and he is a glorious king. And it's not just about Christmas that he came, but he's coming back. And he's not coming back as a little baby. He's coming back as a conquering and reigning king. And everyone will bow their knee at that King Jesus. That is what Christmas is about. I want to hear an amen. Mmm, that's our king. Do you remember I showed a video? That's my king. Do you remember that video? Maybe not, and I just sounded like a weirdo. But it's an awesome video. Dear friends, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Can we sing that as a closing prayer? I wanted to talk to Tim just to see if he could get a few, but I'm not gonna put him on the spot. Let's just sing it a cappella.